Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders here at our church, and I would like to tell you this afternoon about one of the first times I truly feared for my life. I was 14 or 15 years old, and on a youth group retreat to our youth leader's cabin in the mountains in the middle of nowhere, northeastern Pennsylvania, we were playing a game called Jailbreak. It's a little bit like Capture the Flag without any flags, but it's late at night. It's a lot of fun, under the stars, and I thought it would be cool if I went out of bounds to find a better hiding place. So I did that. I found a spot under a huge evergreen tree, and it was dark, and it was quiet, and it was beautiful, and it was perfectly silent out there until I heard a snorting and pawing sound. Afterward, some folks tried to tell me that the snorting meant it was just a deer, and the deer was scared of me and was warning other deer, but I don't care what anybody says. In the moment... I was absolutely convinced this was a bear. And I knew in that moment that God could do with me whatever he wanted to do with me. And nobody would know about it until maybe the next day or weeks later. So I prayed hard for five minutes. I committed my soul to him who judges justly. And then I began shouting for help up to the cabin. And I heard voices from up there, where are you? Nobody could find me, of course, but eventually the animal went away. I came out from hiding. I was no worse for the wear. But I had the fear of God put in me that night. It's amazing what God has to do to us sometimes to remind us how small we are compared to him. This is the main point of Elihu's final speech in this week's passage, which is to remember your smallness to help you grow in the fear of God. We are continuing our study of the book of Job. We're in chapter 36. If you have one of the church Bibles, that's on page 282. The book of Job is about a man who suffers terribly. And then he argues at length with his friends about how to interpret his suffering. They're trying to understand together why Job is suffering the way he is. And along the way, through all those debates, Job occasionally justifies himself over God. He accuses God of not playing fair. He accuses God of not treating Job as Job deserves. He accuses God of remaining silent when Job cries out to him for help. And his friend Elihu comes on the scene, starting in chapter 32, all the way through to this speech that we'll look at today. And Job comes to challenge Job's interpretations. He argues against what Job has spoken since he began suffering. And Elihu is set up in this book in in contrast to three other friends of Job's who were talking earlier in the book who argued that he must have sinned before he began suffering, and in fact, that's why he is suffering. Elihu says, no, that's not true, but Job has started sinning since he began suffering. And Elihu wants to correct Job's thinking and justify God's power and God's actions in Job's life. This speech, chapters 36 and 37, are Elihu's fourth and final speech. And after this, he mysteriously disappears. He's not even mentioned in the rest of the book. 
In his first speech, he wanted to argue that God has not been silent. He speaks to Job through his pain. In the second speech, he argued that God is not unjust. He will eventually strike all the wicked down. In the third speech last week, we saw that righteous living is not pointless, but instead we are significant next to God and our righteousness adds nothing to him. And now in this final speech, he will argue to Job that Job is in no place to criticize God. Instead, Job must remember to fear God. How? How can Job and how can we grow in the fear of God? You can see on your outline that Elihu will make two points. First, how to grow in the fear of God. He will say that you must remember what God has the authority to do. And then second, remember what God uses his power to do. And then Elihu will end his speech with a recap and some application. Let me pray, and then we'll dive into the text. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you, and we ask that you would help us today as we hear your word. Please help us to see you and to know you, that we might understand more of your authority and your power, that in the end, we would fear you more and worship you above all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Elihu's speech has two main sections with this closing recap and application, and both sections have a similar structure where Elihu says basically look at us and then look at God. So in this first section, he's going to say, look at me, look at Elihu, and then look at God. And in the second section, he's going to say, let's look at Job and then let's look at God. So here we go with the first section, look at Elihu, starting at verse 1 of chapter 36. And Elihu continued and said, Bear with me a little, and I will show you, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker, for truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. So Elihu speaking in in verse 2. He claims, just like he did in his first speech, He claims to speak on behalf of God. These are the words of a prophet who is speaking on behalf of God. In verse 3, he says that he knows that knowledge and righteousness are with God, and that's where he gets his knowledge and righteousness from. It's from afar. It's from his maker. Elihu, in other words, knows that if he's going to have knowledge or righteousness, he must put himself under God in a position of receiving from God. In verse 4, he says, My words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. This is not immature arrogance, but this is the result of divine inspiration of a prophet. This is the claim of every biblical prophet. That because I have received my words from God, they, therefore they are authoritative and without error. Elihu is not claiming complete perfection for himself, but for the words in this speech, this revelation from God. The point is this, in this opening stanza. These verses are important because Elihu will later contrast Job's attitude with Elihu's attitude as expressed here. Elihu puts himself under God in a place of submission and reception from God. But later in the speech, we'll see that he 
he accuses Job of putting himself over God in a place of criticism of God. So that's looking at Elihu first. But then he says to look at God. In verse 5, you see, he says, Behold, God is. This is very important. He commands Job to take a look and to behold God, to remember and consider who God is and what he is like, to lift his gaze off of himself and off of his pain and onto the one who has all authority and all power. And in this section, he reminds Job of God's complete authority, but he's going to make this same transition later in the speech, verse 22, where again he will say, behold God. That helps to structure the speech. So let us behold God, verses 5 through 16. Behold, God is almighty. Pardon me. Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, he sets them forever and they are exalted. And if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart cherish anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth, and their life ends among the cult prostitutes. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. He also allured you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping, and what was set on your table was full of fatness. The main idea of this section is right in verse 5. God is mighty and does not despise any. In other words, God is mighty. God has the authority to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to do it. And he does not despise any. God never exercises his authority just because he's out to get somebody. And through this section, Elihu lists many possibilities. He gives all of the ifs, if this, if that, if the other thing. And he traces out the options. This part of his speech, this opening section, is clean and logical. And we can follow his, his logic. In fact, we could make a flow chart out of this part of his speech. First, let me show you. First, look at how God treats the wicked and the righteous. In verse 6, God does not allow the wicked to afflict the innocent forever. He always judges them in the end. He does not keep the wicked alive, though it might not look like that right away. When you look around, it looks like the wicked prosper, but God will not keep them alive, and he will, will give the afflicted their right. And also in verse 7, God never withdraws his eyes from the righteous. And even though they won't always feel his pleasure or his favor, yet his eyes are always on them. 
So there's part of the flowchart here. Here's how he treats the wicked, and here's how he treats the righteous. But then the next fork in the flowchart comes here with the righteous in verses 7 and 8. Sometimes he exalts the righteous with kings, and he prospers them. But sometimes, verse 8, he binds them and afflicts them. In other words, sometimes, Job, bad things happen to good people. And that's under God's authority, just like anything else. In verses 9 to 10, he explains this. He says that when God binds and afflicts the righteous, he always does it with a purpose of training. It's to help them see themselves and to grow more like God through their affliction. He declares to them their work. He he shows them their transgressions when they behave arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction. He commands that they return from iniquity. And so when bad things happen to righteous people, they can have one of two responses. See, here's the flowchart. He treats the wicked one way and the righteous one way. And the righteous, he he can prosper them or afflict them. And when he afflicts them, they have two choices. Either, verse 11, they listen and serve God, and things go well for them. Or verse 12, they do not listen, and things only get worse for them. The point here that Elihu is making is not necessarily that if they listen to God, the suffering will always go away. That's not what he's saying. He says, if they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. What he's saying is that the perspective of the sufferer, the righteous sufferer who pays attention to what God is doing in his or her life, the perspective of that person shifts toward thankfulness and praise to God rather than bitterness and anger. There is no promise here that the suffering will go away, but in verse 11 he says that they complete their days in prosperity, but he further explains that as their years in pleasantness. In other words, though they go through hard times, they won't be bitter about it. They will find pleasantness even in their affliction. It's about their perspective. But in verses 13 through 16, he goes on to describe the ungodly response further. And this has been Job's struggle, one of cherishing anger, one of not crying for help, but crying for justice and daring God to bring the evidence of his wrongdoing. And he says this amazing thing in verse 16, where he turns right to Job and he says, he allured you also out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping and what was set on your table was full of fatness. In one sense, this sounds like a description of Job's former life before he began suffering. But I don't think that makes sense in the context of Elihu's argument here. What I think Elihu is saying is that he's talking about when God binds the righteous and they turn to God for help. And what he's trying to do is he's helping Job to see a new perspective. That actually, Job, where you are right now is not as bad as it could be. If you remember a few chapters ago, he said that, that our suffering reminds us of the pit of hell that we deserve to be thrown into. And he's saying, Job, you have been a lord out of distress. You've been set in a broad place, and your table is full of fatness. And he's encouraging Job to have this kind of perspective on the dark times that God has brought him through. The application for us is this. 
remember God's authority. We talked about this at length when we studied the book of Ecclesiastes before we hit Job. Part of the message of Ecclesiastes is that God is in heaven and you are on earth and you don't know what God is up to. There's a time for every matter under heaven. There's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time for war and a time for peace. And God has appointed each of those things in its time and he has made them beautiful at the right time so that men might fear him. We see this in Job. Elihu says, Job, God can do with you whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And sometimes that means he will exalt you with the highest of society, and other times that means that you will be bound with the chains of affliction. Either way, your response to God will be driven by your perspective. Do you think that God is out to get you? Do you think that your situation is outside of his control? Do you think that God can't do anything about it or that he doesn't want to do anything about it? Or do you bow before the awesome majesty of heaven, the one who sees things you cannot see, the one who knows things that you could never know, the one who weaves all of these things together into his marvelous plan? And though you might never understand his plan, you trust him and you rest in him for his plan. Because when you have that perspective, affliction is no longer something to avoid at all costs, but it's something that God is using to deliver you. Verse 15 is amazing. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction. Not from their affliction, but by their affliction. The affliction is the thing that God is using to deliver you from yourself, from your sin, from the world, and to draw you close to him. And we can reinterpret our loss and our deprivation and bereavement. We can reinterpret that as abundance and largesse because it could always be worse. And everything we have is a gift from God. So when you're feeling pressed upon by external pressure, you can reinterpret it as God has put me in a broad place with no cramping. And God can do something really great here. And I have seen a beautiful model of this in one of our members, Bonnie Drips, who has been just pressed upon. And I've never heard her complain about her struggle with cancer, but she's always looking at what God is doing in it. She doesn't talk about all the pain. She's honest if you ask her about the pain. Yeah, it's not happy or pleasant all the time, but she's not always down and bothered by that, but she's praising God for what he's doing and the time she has with the nurses and the things that she's learning about God in the process. I think it's a great example. Our interpretations of these things all depend on whether we fear God. And that depends on whether you trust that God has all authority in your life. Second, Elihu shifts slightly The first part of his speech was tightly logical. Now he gets powerfully emotional. He wants to capture not only Job's mind, but also his heart. And while the first part was about what God can do as he sees fit, this second part is about what God actually does and how he exerts his power. So first, let's look at Job, starting at verse 17. But you are full of the judgment on the wicked, Judgment and justice seize you. 
Beware lest wrath entice you into scoffing, and let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. Will your cry for help avail to keep you from distress or all the force of your strength? Do not long for the night when peoples vanish in their place. Take care, do not turn to iniquity, for this you have chosen rather than affliction. He turns to Job in verse 17. And he reflects the fact that Job is full of judgment and justice. Verse 18, he says, Job is dangerously close to allowing his wrath to turn into scoffing. And the wisdom literature doesn't have very good things to say about scoffers, those who set themselves over and above God and refuse to hear his instruction. Verse 19, Job has cried for help. Sometimes that has been for rescue, but sometimes his cry has been for accusation, for someone to help him against God. And Job's cries have about as much power against God as a gnat. Verse 20, he says, don't long for the night. I think he's saying, Job, don't wish for death, for that time when people vanish from their place. Don't take the easy way out here. God has so much more in store for you. And Job has chosen, verse 21, iniquity rather than affliction. I don't blame him. I would do the same in his case. But remember, God uses affliction to deliver you. You will end up closer to God than you imagined. The point is this, that while Elihu, at the beginning of the speech, he submits to God for wisdom, by contrast, Job has set himself over God. He claims to be more powerful than God, and he is soon about to be disabused of that notion. Let's look at God. Verse 22. Let me make just a few comments before I read this passage. Once again, Elihu commands Job and us to behold God in verse 22. But he's going to focus, instead of his authority to do stuff, his power, the way he's exalted in his power, the ability he has to execute his authority. And Elihu will focus on God's power expressed through the elements of weather. As I, as I read this, I just want to give you some things to listen for. God's power expressed through the rain, the snow, the ice, the lightning, the thunder. And all that weather imagery is combined with this a picture of God's voice speaking through these things, speaking through the thunder. And I can't help but remember Elihu's first speech where he said that God is always speaking, sometimes with words, but now he's speaking to Job with pain. And so I have a strong suspicion that the storms he's talking about in this speech are not primarily physical meteorological events, though it applies to those, but more likely they're poetic images of Job's suffering, the storms of his life that he's experienced so far, through which God has been speaking to him. Okay, enough of my musings. Let us behold God in his exalted power. Verse 22. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say you have done wrong? Remember to extol his work of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. 
for he draws up the drops of water. They distill his mist in rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? Behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. For by these he judges peoples. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. Its crashing declares his presence. The cattle also declare that he rises. At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go, and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it his voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man that all men whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick clouds with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. Just a few thoughts here. Remember, the first section of the speech was that God has the authority to do whatever he wants. In this section, Elihu says that God has the ability to do whatever he wants. In chapter 36, verse 24, whenever you're tempted to get mad at God, grab this verse. Remember to extol his work. This is the path toward the fear of God. Remember to extol his work. Verse 26, God is great. We know him not. We will never understand God completely. The number of his years is unsearchable. And later, he said that he does great things that we cannot comprehend. We will never understand God completely. We will never understand why he brings all the pain into our lives. And in verse 1 of chapter 37, as Elihu remembers and extols God's work, his heart trembles. And I dare you to try this. If you want to grow in the fear of God, just remember God's work. Take time to consider God's immeasurable power, whether it's demonstrated in your life or demonstrated in nature around you. The adrenaline kicks in, your heart rate increases, you might go and hide in a tree at the mountain cabin and you'll hear that demonic snorting creature and you will know the fear of God like never before. Why does God do this? 
Why does God bring the pain? Why does he put our lives in turmoil? Verse 13 of chapter 37 gives us some hints. Whether for correction or for his land or for love. Sometimes God brings pain for the purpose of correction in order to turn our hearts aside from our pride. Sometimes he brings pain for the sake of his land. In other words, God knows in his infinite wisdom that a near-term crisis will bring about long-term good for his people, for his world, and we don't know that when the crisis hits. Sometimes God brings pain for love. He does it because he, he keeps his eye on us because he loves us, just like in chapter 1 when Satan comes to him from wandering to and fro in the earth and God says, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth. I love him so much and he's doing so much for me that Satan, I want you to, I want to draw your attention to him. Why don't you try to attack him? I dare you. Let's see what happens. Satan says, game on. Sometimes God does this because of his love. Because often in the Bible, physical comfort can be a sign of God's judgment. Because when God judges you, he will let you have what you want. Because what you want for yourself is never as good for you as what God wants for you. And so if he gives you what you want, watch out. But if he loves you, he will take away from you what you want and give you what he wants instead. And that hurts. Regardless, Elihu doesn't claim to know God's motives in Job's life. I don't know. It might be correction or it might be for his land or it might be for love. But why is the wrong question? The right question is who? Whether for correction or for his land or for love, He causes it to happen. This is not a mistake. This is not an impersonal force working against you. It may be Satan's attack, and God will explain that a little more in the next few chapters. But Job, the chapters 1 and 2 made very clear that Satan could not snap a thread of Job's garments apart from the explicit will of God. How does this apply for us? we can always know that God is behind our affliction. I say that without apology, because the Bible says that without apology. The God who can do whatever he wants, he exerts his power to govern our lives, and sometimes that means we will hurt. God doesn't do that because he hates us. He does that because he loves us and he wants what's best for us. And if your view of God is of a God who is out to get you or someone who always does good things for good people, then you will not be ready to handle those difficult times. But if you want to grow in the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom, just remember what God uses his power to do in your life. And at this, your heart will tremble and leap out of its place. And so we come to the end. Elihu closes 
his speech with two final applications. They've been implied all along, and I've already highlighted them, but they're important enough to bear repeating. First, consider God's works. Verse 14 of chapter 37. Hear this, O Job. Stop. It's the first thing you need to do when you're all riled up. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? You whose garments are hot when the earth is still because of the south wind. Can you, like him, spread out the skies, hard as a cast metal mirror? Teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of darkness. Shall it be told him that I would speak? Did a man ever wish that he would be swallowed up? (laughs) When you're all riled up, the best thing to do is to stop and consider the wondrous works of God. And friends, just ask yourself a few simple questions. Do you know how God does what he does? Do you know how to stop the storm clouds? Can you spread out the skies to make them calm again? And do you have any power at all to keep your life calm and at peace? And verse 20, if you keep speaking like this, Job, in your foolish scoffing, and if we do this, you are basically asking to be swallowed up. (laughs) Did a man ever wish that he would be swallowed up? Better to consider God's works than to speak foolishly about God. His second application is to fear God. Verse 21. And now no one looks on the light when it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Friends, God's light shines so brightly that you can't even look upon it. And when you consider his works, you get a sense for two things. Verse 22, his awesome majesty. That is God's authority to do whatever he wants. And the second thing you get a sense of is verse 23, his great and unsearchable power, his ability to, to do what he wants. You will see his authority to do what he wants and his ability to execute what he wants. Therefore, verse 24, men fear him. Are you among those who fear him? Or will you be swept away in your own conceit? Because this matter of fearing God is not just an Old Testament thing. God would eventually shock everyone by becoming a man. His name was Jesus, and when Jesus demonstrated his power over nature and he commanded a supernaturally large catch of fish, Simon Peter understood this in Luke chapter 5, and he said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And he was shaking in his boots. And when Jesus slept through a storm on a boat on a lake, and then he awoke and he stood up and he told the storm to shut up, 
And it did. <sighs> Mark 4 says that the disciples were filled with great fear. And they said, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And the Apostle John later saw Jesus in all his glory with white hair and fiery eyes and a voice like the roar of many waters. And Revelation 1 verse 17 says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This Jesus is the only true God. He is the same God that Elihu spoke about. He is the one we should fear. And when he binds us with affliction and we consider his works, his authority and his power, we learn to fear him. And when we do, he speaks to us, not to accuse us, but to deliver us. Because in Revelation 1, after John falls at his feet dead, Jesus continue, well, he continues to say that he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Friends, if you don't yet know this Jesus, now is your chance before it's too late. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for sending this Jesus who would command the elements and who would have the keys of death and Hades, the one who would die that we might have life and that we might know you. Lord, you brought great affliction into Jesus's life to bring about the salvation of the world. Please help us to expect nothing less in our lives as you work. Sometimes you may exalt us with kings and other times you may bind us with affliction. Please help us to consider your works and to fear you for we cannot comprehend what you are up to. But you are God you have the right to be God, you have the authority to do what you want, and you have the power to do it when you want. We bow before you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.